It was Dr. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary, who said several years ago, he said, few things reveal the depth and the breadth of the total depravity of mankind like the institution of slavery. I agree with him on that statement. Slavery has been around the, uh, worldwide since the fall of man. Man was made in the image of God. He was never intended to be bought and sold. If you recall even from the Old Testament where the Israelites were in slavery in Africa for 430 years. Experts claim that nearly 13 million people were sold as slaves worldwide between the 15th and the 19th centuries. 13 million. The United States participated in that and we had around 5% of that 13 million. Shockingly, if 13 million slaves were over 400 years as a part of the worldwide slave trade, you may be surprised to know that there are over 40 million slaves today, not in the United States, but around the world. This is three times the transit slave trade, according to the, uh, the United Nations. An organization called Anti-Slavery and Domestic Legislation have uh, indicated that slavery is not even a crime in almost half of the countries in the world. It's active. It's participating in slave trading all over legally where there's no penalty. And I'm thankful the United States, at least in 19, or 1864, abolished slavery. It was only 60 years before that that Haiti was the very first nation that abolished slavery in uh, 1804. So slavery's been around the world for uh, centuries, really since the foundation. And only in the last 100 uh, plus years has slavery been abolished in some countries, but not in others. North Korea has the, the highest per capita slavery uh, rate. China has slavery, though on their books they say it's illegal, they do not prosecute. Most Muslim countries still hold to some form of, of slavery as being legal. But unlike the transatlantic slave trade, slavery in the ancient world was racially indiscriminate. When we deal with the text today, we're going to deal with slavery and, and servitude. And in the first century world, it was not based on race. It cut across racial, social, and national lines. You know, I pray for the day when the world can say there is no more slavery, for the abolishment of it, and anyone would be prosecuted if they are participating in it. But in the first century, it was unheard of to try to abolish it. It was a, a way of economic trade. In the very first century, you think about the millions that we talked about just in the last couple of centuries, but in the first century, one out of every three persons in Italy were a slave. Talking about the Roman Empire in Italy, one out of every three persons were a slave. One out of every five in the entire Roman Empire was a slave. You're talking about millions upon millions of people. People became slaves in various ways. They were captured in war. They defaulted on a debt. They had an inability to support oneself, so they just surrendered to slavery. Voluntarily selling oneself. They were being sold as children by destitute parents. 
They were born to slave parents. They were convicted of a crime. Or perhaps they were kidnapped and and sold into slavery. It's in this world that we're going to step into in just a few moments. When, When Jesus speaks, when Paul speaks about slavery, and how is a servant, a slave, to respond to their conditions? We are far removed from that. But even in the most destitute situations, it's interesting what Jesus and Paul state about their response and what we can learn from how we should respond in the days that we live. Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, to a culture who definitely understood slavery, you have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and and take your tunic, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In that culture, it was uh, Jewish residents of Rome uh, in the Roman Empire had no rights. They were under the rule of the Roman Empire. Therefore, if a Roman soldier came by and and saw a Jewish man, he could say, hey, you're going to carry my pack as we're going to walk a mile. That was the obligation of the citizens of that day. And Jesus challenged them. Don't just live up to the minimum expectations. Live out your faith in such a way that you would smile as you walk that mile and then offer a second mile for free. You think that sat well in his sermon? I think people said, oh, yes, let's go apply that right now. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it is said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul is writing to a young pastor named Titus in the book of Titus today. And if you've got the Bible with you, I encourage you to pick it up. And we'll turn to uh, Titus chapter 2. And we're going to look at two verses today, verse 9 and 10. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to pick up the black Bible in the pew rack right in front of you. If you use the Pew Bible, it's on page 938. I'd like you to have your eyeballs on it. Just as David told us about the the powerful effect the Word of God has in the hands of people, that's why I want your eyeballs on the text, to hear what God has to say through His Word versus just some of my commentary and application of it. The Word of God pierces the hearts and changes lives. So as we look at every word, and this is what we're doing as we do expositional teaching through the book of Titus, I want to look at every word and and what does it say and what are we to do with it. Paul is writing to Titus, and and as we indicated several weeks ago, Paul had been there because he was under arrest going to Rome, and and he had a few months in in, uh, Crete where where he is, or where he was, and the gospel had been planted there, but now Paul is uh, moved on, but he's sending Titus back saying, you know, the gospel's been planted here, the church has birthed, but there's some things out of order, and so Titus, I'm sending you uh, there so you would put what remains into order. Part of that was raising up godly leaders, and and now it's how do we disciple in the culture that we're in. And he's talked about older men and older women, younger men, younger women. And now he addresses in verse 9 and 10, bond servants. 
those who apparently would be those who, who have no rights, but how as they get saved and as they're contributing uh, to the church, how do they respond in a world that they have no rights? And he says this, verse 9, bond servants, which is doulos, it's slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The reason I appreciate expositional preaching, that means going through, going through books, going through the understanding of every word, is because we have to go across some words, some sections, some verses that we may not be comfortable with. But if God has placed in his word, it is necessary that we read, we comprehend, and we understand so that we can apply. And I don't believe anybody in this room is a slave today, but, you know, thinking about the first century believers who were slaves and getting instruction from Titus here on how to respond to their masters who are treating them uh, wrongly, I think of us who live in a free country, and I'll never take that for granted because it could be taken away someday. But in our freedom, and we boast about our freedoms in this nation, God is calling all of us to be servants. In our freedom, we would, we would fight against those who'd want to enslave us, but he is telling us in this, you, you may not be a slave, but would you voluntarily surrender your life at times to other people that they may benefit from the gospel? Several years ago, uh, there was a term coined uh, by C Steve Shogren who said that the church, his whole church in Cincinnati was all about servant evangelism. He says everybody is about evangelism, sharing the gospel, which you could and should vocally share the gospel. But he said in our culture, people won't hear you until they see you. So go out and serve people, giving you an opportunity to share what the gospel is. And he grew an entire church based on, in his culture, about servant evangelism. So as I look at this text, knowing in our day, we're not slaves being bound, but how could we step into the world and serve people with a smile, serve people with good intention, serve people not be, you know, where we're well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing good faith? How could we uh, submit and surrender to those in our lives, whether our boss or our neighborhood or, or wherever we are, and just ser serve people? What is your doctrine or belief of servitude? Paul does, does not, in, the, in this verse, endorse slavery. But he does provide a strategy to serve others in a way that may make an internal impact in their lives, no matter what position they may have. No matter who you may be under in your authority, no matter where you may find yourself, I think Paul gives us five principles in these two verses that promote a happy and holy life that may impact those you work with or even work for. And I'm going to use the acrostic. I rarely do this, but I saw it in the text, so I'm going to just give it to you this way. We're going to do uh, the acrostic. Serve, S-E-R-V-E. -E. I'm glad I was able to spell that without spell check. I don't always get that right. But serve. 
I mean, as someone like Paul, who had been on trial, who is in chains, who is headed to prison, who has no rights, he's speaking from experience what it means. You don't have any rights? How do you serve those who are under under their authority? How do you love them in a way that that proclaims the gospel in, in this difficult situation? As, as Paul often was chained to the Praetorian Guard, heading it towards Rome, he knew that he was bound, but the way we live our lives can be unbound with the gospel. Do you realize Paul wrote most of the New Testament while he was sitting in prison? You think, how can I be effective if I'm under someone's authority and I don't have a lot of freedoms? Listen, the gospel is not bound. You can live it. You can share it even while in prison or in slavery. You can live it, even while you're working for the employer you do or living where you live. Paul knows that everywhere you are is a place to be happy and holy and to share the gospel. He knew that everyone he met was someone you could serve and impact with the gospel. So what is your doctrine and belief about serving? 281 times the word serve is used in the Bible. The Greek word serve means to wait upon someone, to attend to someone, to take care of someone's requests or needs. It can also be translated minister. We use minister as a title, but in reality, minister is a verb. It's what you do to serve one another. So what is your ministry? How do you minister to others? In the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 43, Jesus said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. He didn't mince words, did he? For even the Son of Man did not uh, uh, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul wrote about this same uh, aspect in Philippians chapter 2 when he spoke about Jesus. He says, though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You think about how Jesus, who was all uh, creator, all God, and he came to serve you. He showed this at the Lord's Supper as he gathered the disciples together for the Passover, but he he translated that into a whole new meaning with the communion and his last supper. In John chapter 13, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. A servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. As those in the Jewish culture were walking in the streets of Jerusalem, their feet would get very dirty. They may wear sandals, they may be barefoot, but when they walked into a home, it was customary for the owner of the home to have their servant, the lowest person in the household, to wash everyone's feet so they would be clean as they came into that home. And imagine when you walked into that room, that upper room, uh, you know, for, for Passover, And Jesus, the the one you're following, the king of the universe, is the one who kneels down and washes your feet. How humbling. And then he calls all of his disciples. Just as I've washed your feet, 
You want to serve other people in the same way. You think that's the lowest person on the totem pole? Well, that's what I'm calling you to do in the world you live in. Wow. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, but only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So how in this passage of Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, can we serve one another? The first way is to be submissive. You'll see it right in the text. If you're going to take the outline, uh, uh, serve, the first letter is S, and it is submissive. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. He does not say, you need to buck against the system. You need to fight. You need to protest. You need to claim your rights. If you find yourself in a position where you, you can serve, then be submissive to your own masters. Let God bust you out. Get him, he'll work for you. You simply step into a submissive role. Whether it's your workplace, your neighborhood, with fellow Christians, your country, your spouse, your parents, serve in a way that might take second chair. How can we do this? Why should we do this? How many of you would agree, and if your boss is sitting here, don't admit it, but how many of you agree you've worked for somebody in your past that wasn't worthy of you submitting to their command? Some of them were jerks. Some of them just, uh, just didn't care about you, but they, they were paying you a paycheck, and you had to serve them in such a way that it may come uh, outwardly okay, but inwardly you're just dying inside going, I hate this job, I hate this place, I hate that teacher, I hate those people. Yeah, there are times we step into a position where Jesus says, you ought to submit to them and serve them even though they are not worthy of it. And you think, well, why would we do that? And then I consider what Jesus did for us. None of us were worthy of salvation. Not one of us was worthy of him humbling himself and becoming a servant, either to the point of death on the cross. See, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because we are worthy, it's because we are sinners and in great need. And because of his kindness, he led us to repentance. Serve one another. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Colossians 3, uh, 22, 23, 24. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as you're working for the Lord and not merely for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Jesus Christ. How do you serve a boss? How do you serve a teacher? How do you serve even a parent that may not be worthy of service? You just remember you're not working for them, you're working for the Lord. And through your humbling of working for the Lord, you may actually make an impact for the gospel in their life. Ultimately, we always serve Jesus Christ. We do everything for the glory of God, who has gifted us and strengthened us. Our motivation in serving others is a divine calling to please our Father and our Savior. To serve others, we help others, we honor others in a way that honors Jesus. Are there exceptions of when we should not serve others or obey others? Yes, there are times you should not obey the command of someone who is an authority over you. You should not obey something when they ask you to do something unbiblical or illegal or unethical or immoral. 
Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. They were asked to, to do something, commanded by law to do something they would not do. They would not bow down to a foreign god. They obeyed all the other things, but they would not bow down. And they trusted the Lord would protect them or send them into his presence. So we do not serve in a way that would violate our Christian principles. But outside of these, our goal should always be to submit and serve others for the sake of Christ. Paul was a great example of this. While in prison or on the mission field, he served others for their good. What about E? We serve others by being excellent. Look at the text. He says, in everything, they are to be well-pleasing. This speaks to the scope and the spirit of service. As you serve someone, how is your heart? What is your attitude towards this? Do you have an attitude of gratitude that Jesus has you alive and has you, gives you an opportunity to serve? A servant of Jesus strives to be well-pleasing in attitude and effort, giving the best, being excellent at what you've been asked to do, not half-heartedly, but fully engaged. This is well-pleasing to the Lord, which will be well-pleasing to those you serve. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us in verse 6, a bondservant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Actions and attitudes put Christ on display for all to see. You ever been asked to do something you really didn't want to do, and you did it about half-hearted just to make sure as minimum requirement? And here Christ always says, give it your best because remember, you're working for me, not for them. It's your character that shines or confuses about the gospel. You know, uh, the example that I, I see in Scripture is Peter. I don't find in Scripture Peter did anything halfway. He was all out, whatever it was. He gave us all. He walked on water. He was the first to conf uh, confess that Christ was the Son of God. He was the first to confess all of his devotion. He, he was first to preach to a potentially hostile crowd. Whatever Peter did, he did his best. And he also blew it royally. Whichever it was, he was all out, all in, all going for it. He was excellent, which leads me to our... The next words in here is not argumentative. I see this as respectful. When you serve others and you're submissive and you're excellent, you move into a respectful attitude. You're not argumentative. You don't fight for your rights. You just respect them, not fighting against. When I was in high school, I had a part-time job somewhere. I won't say where it is because sometimes people watch this, this, uh, uh, the service from where I come from, so I won't even say what their name was. Because they may call me and say, you're talking about me, aren't you? When I was in high school, I, uh, I worked a part-time job at a couple different places, but one place. And, and uh, one particular place, there was, were just two of us that were working at this uh, location, and, and it got super busy. And my coworker, who uh, was uh, not only a, my coworker, he actually came, to, you know, to my church, and uh, he went to my school, so I knew him pretty well. And but he was in one of these philosophical phases of his life, and he was really busy. And I'm—I won't even say his name, but hey, you—you you got to come help. And he just—he just stopped, and he says, "Chris, I'm not a human doing. I'm a human being." 
And we got 20 people in line, and I'm like, I can tell you what you're going to do with that human being in a second. But anyway, no, you know, one of the things is just like, okay, I'm, I'm a human being. I'm not a human doing. But I'm thinking if you don't start doing, you ain't going to be being here any longer. But here, he, he wasn't trying to be argumentative, but he really was. He was like, I'm not really here for that. There are people who are argumentative. They're not respectful. They don't understand what their role is. See, servants of Christ do not talk back or mouth off. Yeah, I'll do it, but boy, what a jerk I'm working for. Boss comes in, talks to 20 people, and the boss walks out, and everybody starts complaining and arguing. A servant is not argumentative, contentious, or dis disagreeable. They don't talk bad behind the backs of those who are in authority, which would compromise their witness. Consider, there's 20 people there. Boss comes in, says something, and, and everybody's disgruntled, and it's the Christian who's the most vocally argumentative, and he has just lost his witness for Christ. This guy complains about everything. You know, sometimes just a few words of argumentation, of, 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 of frustration can ruin a lifetime of testimony. Words are powerful. Proverbs 13.3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. One other place in Proverbs where it, it speaks in chapter 18, a fool's, a fool's lips walk into a fight. And his mouth invites a beating. You ever know anybody like that? The example here I find best in Scripture is Jesus. It was prophesied about him in Isaiah chapter 53 about what he would encounter. And listen to these words. Jesus is who it's speaking of. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter... And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, does it mean you should never speak up at times? Bring a calm spirit to a situation and, and to add some other words? No, you certainly have the right to do that, and, and perhaps it would be justified. But this passage says, as a believer in Christ who's serving others, we're not to be argumentative. We're not to be jerks. We're not to fight for our rights. Had Jesus fought for his rights and won the battle and didn't go to the cross, all of us would be heading towards hell. He surrendered in order that all of us would benefit. V, serve others by being virtuous. It uses these two words here in verse 10, not pilfering which means not stealing. Christian servants are not thieves, but they are to be trusted, honest, dependable people of integrity. A virtuous person conforms to the moral and ethical principles of life. Rather than giving less, a Christian servant goes the extra mile, as Jesus already said in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Rather than giving half effort, cutting out early, cutting corners, dragging your feet, bringing down the team, expressing a have-to attitude versus I get-to attitude... Rather than stealing time, stealing office supplies, inflating expense accounts, fudging the timesheets, or an unauthorized use of employers' resources, a servant of Christ conducts himself with absolute honesty and integrity. He does not pilfer. He does not steal. He does not act unbecomingly. He's a virtuous person who people will see his actions. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. In the scriptures, I find Joseph to be this model. You think about Joseph who was sold into slavery by his own brothers. But he lived in such a virtuous way that Potiphar noticed and put him in charge of the entire household. Now Potiphar's wife was not virtuous and she was a liar. And so Joseph, rather than being killed, which he could have, Potiphar placed him back in, in prison. But he did not curse. He did not scream. He did not fight for his rights. He just trusted the Lord would do something with him. And later, he, because of his own virtuous nature, he ended up not only running Potiphar's household, he ran the entire country of Egypt, second in command to the, Pharise, or the, uh, the, um, uh, the leader, the Pharaoh. Which leads me to the last Portion. How do we conclude serving? It says here in the end of verse 10 that we're to be an example. That other people would follow, other people would take notice of. And it says here, but showing all good faith. Showing. It's an example that we're setting. We're showing all good faith to those who are around us. So that in everything, not some things, not just the things we like, the things that are easy. So in everything that we do, whether we're under the authority of someone else or living in our freedoms, we show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We're going to look like Jesus when we serve the way he did. When a Christian serves well, their trustworthiness, their reliability, their dependability are evident. I just wonder, are you known more for your loyalty and integrity? Or are you known for other things? Does your supervisor wish there were ten of you? Because, man, what you're able to do is just pretty incredible. Are your neighbors thankful they get to live near you? Even when times are tough, do you get better in those situations or just become bitter? Listen, a person who's been transformed by the gospel serves rather than steals, blesses rather than curses, and you truly live to give because God is the one who fills you with what you need. A person who serves well displays an attractiveness and a credibility for the gospel. To serve well is to put your sermon on display. We can speak a lot here, I can, I can preach every week for 30 minutes plus, but it'll make no impact in the life that, that you live if you don't live it out in front of the people who live in this community. Your neighbors, your boss, your friends, your, your, your enemies, those all over. The gospel needs to hear the words, but they ought to see the sermon in your life first. How are you serving? How are you humbly uh, offering your life to others that they may see the gospel and then do as Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works. And what will happen when they see your good works? It does not say, and they'll applaud you. No, they'll see your good works, and you know, you'll do it in such a humble way that they will begin to glorify your Father who is in heaven. May Christians be known for their life for God and how they serve people who don't even deserve it. Because my goal is that we would magnify the glory of God in our world in such a way that we would be multiplying disciples as he's called us to.